Our gospel reading this morning is John 14, verses 15 through 24. You can find that on page 901 in the Bibles we provide, and it's on page 254 in the children's Bibles. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. This is the gospel of Christ. And then our epistle reading is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2. That's on page 978 in the Bibles we provide and on page 288 in the children's Bibles. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon text comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. It can be found on page 157 in the Bibles we provide page 40 in the children's Bibles. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. You shall purge the evil from your midst. This is the word of God. Certain things that you have to embrace about yourself, don't you? There are things about you that you wish just weren't true but are. Um, I've been accused by multiple people, including my wife, of being cheesy. And I've just learned that it's true. It just, it's just kind of who I am. I kind of, I'm now just kind of embrace it and own it. Um, one of the things that I love that kind of I think is a good example of my cheesy nature is I love church signs. I love driving by and seeing what kind of crazy thought process that someone has to try to draw other people into the church. I've got a few examples for you, just because I think it makes it a little more real. God expects spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. Maybe that does it for you. I don't know. What is missing from CH blank blank CH? 
You are. It's good, it's good, classic. Walmart is not the only saving place. Oh, miss that one. Oh, I can never read this one. Don't get burned, use sun, S-O-N, sunblock. Sun being Jesus, it's good, just trust me, you're missing out. Love thy neighbor, even if they're not a Tennessee fan. It's good words, I think especially in Knoxville. Sign broken, come inside for message. Last one, free coffee, everlasting life, yes. Membership has its privileges. And what you love is the, what, the thought process of a church is we want to portray some message to the world around us. There's something we're trying to say about who we are. Thankfully, we don't have a sign like that. We have a big stone sign instead that just stays the same, says the same thing all the time. Probably because it would be really, some of you might cringe if you thought if I was in charge of the sign. Let's just say it that way. <laughs> These are just scratching the surface. But we do, hopefully you've seen this. You haven't seen our sign, but you've seen this. This is plastered around different places of campus as our mission statement, as our marching orders to you as the church and to us as a church to say what we're about is loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. Now, what's great about this is it's sweet and it's condensed and it's short, but there's kind of two problems that I think arise automatically. One, every religious organization known to man could fit in that. Muslim, Buddhist, anybody else can typically say, love God, whoever you call God. Love one another, sure, maybe their one another's a little more narrow, one another's like us, and serve the world. That what we want to do is spread what we have to other people. So for us, our actual mission statement that doesn't fit into a nice little thing there is to respond to God's love by following Jesus in loving God, loving one another, and serving the world. And that is a super important distinction. We're not expecting or calling us to try to somehow earn our salvation by these actions, that we love God, we love one another, and we serve the world, and maybe God's going to be okay with me. But that we love God because he first loved us. And in response to his work on our behalf by sending his son to die on the cross, then, because of that, we long to love God, to love one another and serve the world. The second part is, what does that mean? Love God sounds really easy. Okay, love God. Love you. We have to understand what we mean by love is not this emotional connection that sometimes we think that love is. Oftentimes we live in a culture that thinks of love as Valentine's Day or love songs or love, like romantic comedies, all great things. Like love is this emotional feeling. Well, what God is going to say to us is it's not just this emotion that you feel. Because let's be honest, if we were ruled by our emotions about whether we love God, how often would we love God? If it depended upon how I felt in the moment, it's bad how I feel in the moment. I, my church attendance would be terrible if it was just how I felt in the morning. Because if that's what rules how I am and what I'm doing, I'm in trouble because my emotions are all over the place. But there's a beautiful, active commitment that God has and he's going to call us to, which is what we're going to study this morning. But to do that, I think we need a little bit of context, just a little bit. 
It's the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason, again, you can find, we read you know, John's account of what, it, you know, Jesus made it pretty clear. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. We could, have, we could have camped out there. We could have camped out in a lot of places. But the reason we, that I chose, that I feel like that God really led me to Deuteronomy is because that church is where we are now. This is a group of people who knew their leader and their leader's name was Moses. He was the one that brought them up out of Egypt. He was the one that helped them and sustained them in the wilderness. And now they're at the precipice of going into the promised land with an understanding that he's not going. So they find themselves going, well, what do we do? What do we think? What do we need to know? What is important that we've got to take with us into the promised land? And Moses understood that. So the entire book of Deuteronomy is a collection of his last sermons to his people. As he sends them out and says, here are the things you need to know before you go on. And there's a short-term and a long-term aspect to it. Because we find in Deuteronomy all the time, what Moses is saying is, I'm going to teach you these things for you to teach to your children. Teach them to the next generation. Let all people know. Knowing that when he's gone, that's the metrics. That's how things were going to go from person to person, generation to generation, was by word of mouth and by living it out. And so he leaves them in that context. But another important thing we need to know as Western civilization, culture Christians, we see the Bible in first person when so often the Bible's about community. We look about how does this relate to me specifically, not how does it relate to the body of Christ. And so often, if you'll find in scripture, you'll see very few times where it's ever just one-on-one. But it is quite often, like it is here, we're speaking to the entire community of God's people because they knew, Moses knew, God knows we need each other. Should you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely, but it shouldn't end there. Because let's be honest, we're all kind of messed up people. At least I am. Let me, let me rephrase. I'm a messed up person. I am so quick to warp the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can do it so easily. And I can also so easily justify my actions. I'm really good at arguing with other people, but I'm even better at arguing with myself. And I can justify these things and say, oh, well, you know, here, this was going to be really hard or difficult or make me sad, so I'm just not going to do it, God, because, you know, you don't want me to be sad, right? I mean, that's how this works. So what we need is each other to come around to show us truth, to hold the mirror up to us and say, here's how you're living, here's what you believe, but that's not what the Bible says. So when he gives it to us in this context of community, we need to take very We need to have a great understanding that that is with the context that we should be in as well. That all that we're hearing, all that we're talking about is in that context. And specifically this passage, he's giving them a point to the future. He's saying what will happen is people amongst you are going to rise up and be these false prophets. People from the nations where you're going to go will be false prophets. And I want to teach you and show you how to not listen to them and instead listen to truth. And he says, when that happens, it's a test to see if you really love me. And then he gives him this picture. He says, to see if you love me with all your heart and soul. And then he gives us these six phrases in groups of two. So really kind of three that say, this is what it means to really love me. It doesn't mean as the pagans are going to say, if you really love me, you're going to sacrifice your children in worship which the other religions did. If you really love me, you're going to hurt yourself because you really want to show your devotion to me. It's not what it is. 
and all these other things the false religions would throw at them, they needed to know truth. And he says, here's the truth. And like I said, he gives them three pictures. The first one, he says, is you need to walk after me and fear me, which is worship. The second one is um, that you need to obey my voice, you need to keep my commandments, which is obedience. And the third one, which is a picture of trust for them, was that you serve me and that you hold fast to me. That those are our three pictures. You want to know what loving God is? It's about worship. It's about obedience. It's about trust. So let's jump into our first little picture there. He says, if you want to love me, that you need to walk after me and you need to fear me. And this understanding of walking after is a part of priority. It's like, where do we fit? in this whole equation when it comes to us and God. If we're honest, or at least if I'm honest, I really resonate with that nice old bumper sticker that Jesus is my co-pilot. And that's what I want. I want my hand on the wheel. I want to drive, but I want you over there in case something bad happens. In case I lose control of something, you know, then I want you to jump in. Or worse, I'm like, Jesus, I'd actually like you in the back seat. You're kind of crimping my style here, and I'm really kind of going. I'd really like you as far back there as I can. And that is... So typical of where our heart is. We don't want to follow. We want God to follow along us. We want to blaze our trail and God has come along. That's a good idea. That's great. That's good. Let me bless that. Good job. That's what we want because our hearts are so prone to want to be God instead of following God. Good example is my daughter who's not here. So when they're not here, you can tell stories about them. So that's great. She, um, from a very young age, had a very strong will. I don't know where she got it from. It's just from somewhere. We're not going to talk about that. She loved to be in front. So wherever we were going, like if we would walk to the mall, she did everything in her little power at three or four years old with those little legs to get in front of us, having no clue where we were going. Just, I just want to be in front. I just want to lead the way. I can't tell you how many places, be at the mall or be it at a park or be it at somewhere else, that we would kind of half lose her for a while because she's just going. She's like, this is the way we're going. And we have to stop and wait and go, hey, babe, we're going this way. And as soon as we made a turn, what would we have? And she'd get in front of us again. And I tell you that because isn't that us? Aren't we so quick to try to get ahead of God and in front of God? When the truth is, if we love him, worship of him is saying that you are first and I am not. You are most important and I am not. And so then I want to follow you and what you're doing instead of asking you to bless me and what I'm doing. We have to walk after him. And then we have to fear him. And for most of us as Christians, we don't like that word. We don't like this idea of God that we are to be afraid of, have a fear, even a healthy fear of. We would prefer him to be the big teddy bear God. You love me, my father, this is great. But when we see in the Bible over and over again, when his messengers show up, people's response is to fall down on their faces like they're dead out of fear. So if those are God's messengers, if God himself showed up, I dare say that we just don't understand and just don't get it. But this picture of fear is this picture of awe. It's this picture of he is greater and better and other than. That we worship a God that you can't exaggerate. No matter how hard you try, you can't exaggerate God. Our words are not capable to tell you how great he is. He is yet greater still. 
The picture John Piper gives us in one of his books was, you know what? We, if we don't understand the majesty of God, we will be so easily enamored with the things that money can buy. And he says it this way. If you've never seen the sun before, then a street lamp is pretty amazing. And if you've never heard thunder and lightning, then fireworks are one of the best things you've ever seen. If we don't truly understand the majesty of God and who he is and how great he is, we will easily be satisfied with a life of shadow and a life of very small pleasures. So when we say that we are to fear God, we're supposed to have a healthy awe of who he is, awe of how amazing he is, awe of how great he is and the things he has done for us. And when we gather in worship, that's what we're called to do. We are to ascribe him worth. Worship is basically saying to God, you are worthy of everything that I have and everything that I might do because you are better and greater than anything I could ever become. And for us, that is such a humbling place to be. And yet that's the call of us as God's people to love him, to understand that we follow behind, that he is first and he is so much greater than all we could ask or imagine. So that's the worship part. The second part is obedience. It says to keep my commandments and to obey my voice. Now this, the Hebrew word for keep is actually a word for guard. And where you'll see it is you'll see it in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve have been expelled. And it says that he set up angels with flaming swords to guard the garden. And if we don't understand that, why that is, we'll miss kind of the, the point we need to see, which what they were doing was guarding something super valuable. What were they guarding? They were guarding the tree of eternal life. Why? Because God did not want Adam and Eve to live forever in a fallen state. They had already sinned. They had already eaten what they weren't supposed to. If they ate from the tree of eternal life, they would live forever separated from God. And God would not have that. So God set up something to guard that which was very important and very valuable. And for us, when it says keep guard the commandments. The commandments should be very valuable to us, very important to us. Jesus made it as clear as he can when he says, if you love me, you're going to obey. And for us, what are the ways that we are guarding God's word and guarding his commandments? It reminds me of a movie called the book of Eli. I'm not saying it's a good movie. I'm not, I'm not commending it to you, but it's a movie. And there's this picture of this dystopian future where the water is scarce and people are crazy, which is like 95% of the movies out there right now, but just generally. But he has this book, and we don't know what this book is, but he has this book, and he, and he spends time with it, and it's important, and books are very rare at the time. So the antagonist, the bad guy, is going, I want this book, because if I've got this book, then I can change people's minds, and I can control them. So this whole movie is them finding out he's got the book and them trying to kill him for having the book. And he fights to the death to protect this book, to guard this book. Spoiler, sorry, you're going to just, sorry, this, it wouldn't make sense otherwise. The book is the Bible. And he's blind and he has a braille copy of the Bible and he looks at it every day. And he's willing to guard it with whatever it takes. At the end of the movie, when he's finally defeated, as it were, and the book is taken away from him, we find out how he truly guarded it. At the end of the movie, we find him laying down, transcribing the entire Bible from memory. 
He had guarded it by making a part of who he was in his heart, in his life. It was that valuable and important that he was going to keep it at all costs and guard it within himself. Is that our attitude towards the Bible? It's not mine. I'll be honest. There are times when I do a good job memorizing you know, scripture, and there's a lot of times I do a really bad job of it. Because I wonder whether it's really that important and valuable as God says that it is. And so often, again, we live in this tension of, well, I don't want to read the Bible, but if I don't feel like it, I shouldn't do it, right? I don't want to be legalistic about my faith. So I, if I don't feel like praying or if I don't feel like reading the Bible, I just probably won't. What in other part of your life does that work? I don't feel like going to work for the next two months, but they'll just have to understand when I come back. I just wasn't into it. You know, my heart wasn't there, so they should get that, right? You know what? I, my wife is great, but like, I just don't really want to love her for the next couple of weeks. I just want to be selfish and all about me. She'll get over it. She'll, she'll understand in, in a little while, right? Like I can, that is our mindset. We wouldn't do that in any other place, but we think there's something about, well, if my emotions aren't engaged, love is not an emotion. Love is an action. It is lived out before people. So when we love God, we do it in an active way that we are going after him, that we want to know his commandments so that we may obey his commandments. And so often, like I said, sometimes I don't want to come to church on Sunday. A pastor's probably not supposed to say that. So we'll just... We'll strike that from the record later. That'd be great. Awesome. But it's the truth. But you know what always happens? When I obey, my affections always follow. When I get here on a Sunday morning that I really didn't want to get up and put on my bow tie and get here, it takes me about five minutes of sitting in that pew in that first song, and it washes over me, and I realize the beauty of the Lord to be here. We are called to guard his word and guard his commandments and to obey his voice. Part of why we say we want to gather in worship is for the good of each other, certainly. But we want to create space for you in your life to knock out all the voices of the world so you can hear the still, small voice of Jesus Christ. We see this in the same way that Elijah, when he was up on the mountain in the cave, and the world's going crazy. There's fire, there's earthquakes. And yet there was one still small voice, God speaking to him. This is your oasis. This is your haven where you can block out the noise of the world to hear the still small voice of Jesus Christ calling to you. Through the worship, through his word, through the table, through each other, all ways that God speaks. So come and enjoy that, hear that, and then obey that. It's not just good enough to know the right answers. It's we putting it into practice. It's us living it out before other people. Our best way that we have an example, the way that we show Jesus the most is the way we love one another, which we'll talk about next week. But we live out this active faith. So it's about worship. It's about obedience and it's about trust. It says in the end that you'll serve me and that you'll hold fast to me. This idea of serving, again, puts us in this hierarchy. We serve the master. That we are now less than, that he is greater than, and that's why we serve him. But also we serve him because we believe what we do matters. What we do accomplishes something. That God uses even our petty little parts, the little things that we can do for his eternal glory. 
So we serve him. We give to him. And so much of that is a place of trust. We serve him because we trust him for who he is and what he's done. Let me give you a couple pictures of that. First, in the Old Testament, the Sabbath. And we said, keep the Sabbath and make it holy. For us, it's a day off work. Awesome. For them, in an agrarian agricultural society, one day without working the fields could mean you don't eat. So for them to obey God's command was a huge step in trust that God will provide no matter what. And we can trust him at his word. The same thing for us in tithing. We don't talk about tithing much of this church, so we're not going to do a whole lot now. But the idea that we tithe, that we give to God from what he generously gives us is an opportunity for us to trust that God is going to give us all that we need. The biggest reason why we don't give to God is like, well, we need that. I mean, we have to survive. We have all these bills and all this other stuff. Absolutely. But is God big enough and great enough to take care of all your needs? And have you ever given him the opportunity to? Or have you tried to do it so much in your own power, your own spirit, your own accomplishments that you've missed out on an opportunity to truly trust him? That's what he's calling us to, to serve him. But not only that, to hold fast to him. That we have to cling to him. The other, in the Hebrew, another place it's used is in Genesis 2, this idea of Adam and Eve. And it says that they will leave their family and cleave to one another. It's this picture of covenant marriage. That's what he means by clinging to. And I just have to confess, I am great at clinging to God when I need him and great at separating from God when I don't. Jesus gives us the picture of the vine and the branches, and he says, abide in me. You can't abide and detach and abide and detach. It doesn't work. And yet I live a life so often that I'm trying to do that. My 43-year-old self is very similar to my 7-year-old self. My 7-year-old self loved having my own room until I had a nightmare. And I would run full speed down the hallway and jump into my bed and give my parents a heart attack because I needed them. And that's so often how I approach God. When I need something, I'm holding on tight. But when I don't, I'm good. The picture is this covenant of marriage. And I know we live in a world where marriage is not as valuable as it once was. But this picture, that this is our connection. A wise friend of mine named Todd Erickson said this at a wedding one time, and so I've done what every good pastor does. You steal it, and you use it for yourself. And he said, you know what, when these two, this, this sinful, failing, faulty couple stands up and says their vows to each other and says, I do, their yes to each other is only valuable because of all the no's that are attached to it. When I said yes to my wife, MJ, you know what I said no to? Every woman that would ever live on the face of the earth as long as I'm alive. And because of that, that yes had value to her. Because it's connected to all these no's. When he says that he wants us to cleave and cling to him, and he gives us this picture of marriage, what he is saying is our love for God is saying yes to him, which means I'm saying no to everything that's not him. 
I'm saying no to the things that try to take my mind away from him. I'm saying no to the things that try to stand in his place to satisfy me, that that is what it means to love him, is to hold on to him through all seasons of life, no matter what happens, and hold on to him alone. Because in order to cling to him, I've got to let go of so many other things. I have to let go of people's opinions. I've got to let go of safety and security. I've got to let go of so much that I hold on to for my own security and significance. I have to let it go to say, because loving you is better. Let me tell you a little secret. God does not need your worship. God does not need your obedience, and God does not need your trust. He doesn't need, he is fully, completely satisfied within himself and needs nothing. So why then does he call us to love him? Because it's for our good. When we truly worship him, it is for our good. When we truly obey him, it is for our good. And we truly trust him, it is for our good. Because then we stop trying to be God and we allow him to be. He calls us to love him for our benefit because that is what is best for you and for me. And the question is, what does our love look like? Does our love look like a love that worships God for who he is? Does our love look like a love that obeys God's commandments? And does our love look like a love that trusts God no matter what the circumstances or situations? I don't know about ours, but I can tell you someone's who does. Let me quote you Andrew Brunson, who we prayed for earlier today. He's written a song while he's in prison, and it is beautiful. This is what he says. It will be worth it all someday. It will be worth it all. To see you face to face, to look into your eyes ablaze with love for me, to run into your embrace. No more tears, no more pain, no more loneliness, no more fears, no more suffering. In your embrace, safely home, forever safe in your embrace. It will be worth it all because you are worth it all and you are worthy of my all. Someone who's been in prison for 555 days gets it. We are called to love him And it's not about us, it's all about him, but it's for our good because he alone is worthy of it all. Such a natural way for us to understand his love is because he loved us first. And we have that beautiful picture of the Lord's Supper, that beautiful picture of the communion table to remind us of the great love that God has for us.